The Contemporary Art Galleries Association, ACAC, is proud to reveal the new identity for its art fair, formerly known as Papier. Now entitled Plural, the fair will welcome over 45 galleries from eight Canadian cities, bringing them to Montreal. Running from April 21st to 23rd, Plural will celebrate the best of Canadian contemporary art. The fair brings together a plurality of voices from across the country, elevating art market practices through a rigorous selection of galleries and presenting thoughtfully chosen artists and artworks. Plural fosters the discovery of new voices and forms of expression in leading contemporary art and cultivates a sense of collectivity within the Canadian art community. Visit agoc.ca for more information and to plan your visit in April. The Art Gallery of York University in Toronto presents Imogene Imaginations, a solo exhibition of new works by Botswana-born US-based painter Maleko Magosi. Open now until June 10th, 2023. Imogene Imaginations debuts a body of multi-panel paintings and prints examining the role images play in shaping individual and collective processes of self-determination. Magosi skillfully integrates figurative painting with material specific to his generation's coming of age in Southern Africa. Come see Maleko Magosi, Imogene Imaginations before it closes on June 10th. To learn more, visit the gallery website at agyu.art. AGYU is located at York University's Kiel campus and admission is always free. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Welcome to season six, episode one, Indeed. where it is going to be Sky and I, because mm-hmm. we wanted to introduce you to what we're doing with this season and also have an opportunity to speak with Sky Gooden closely. <laughs> Lean in. It's, yeah. This is the instance where that shit will work. So maybe to give an introduction of what we want to do with this season, it's very similar to last season. So hold on to your, (laughs) hold on to your butts. It's not going to get that much more complicated. In the past season, we've been talking to writers about a text of their own, you know, how it came to be, how it was published, what the reception of it was. Now we want to talk to writers about a text that influenced them or that is important to them. It can be a tall order for it to be the primary text, which I think initially we were envisioning, right? Like one of the source texts for somebody's work in this field. But I think once we discovered that we would start together and I started resisting the sort of sentimental urge to get back (laughs) into like the the bedrock um, and just think about something that I've been reading more recently, we played with the dials a bit. And I think, yeah, the the conceptual framework now is simply to talk to people about what they're reading, um, whether historically or now, what's got them twirled up or feeling like they want to, to speak back to it. Exactly. And then we decided that, yeah, you know, because lo those many seasons ago, Sky interviewed me about a text I had written about manifesta, however many manifestas <laughs> ago. So we decided we would start this season with me talking to Sky about a text that has got you twirled up at the moment. 
I'll be talking about a book that came out in 2020 called Art Writing yeah. in Crisis. And just to situate us in sort of why, why this and why now, um, mm. I was giving a talk a couple weeks ago that I had to prepare for, which I'm not used to preparing for talks <laughs> with um, <laughs> any real concentration. I, <laughs> I like to throw a thing together on the morning of, but in this case, <laughs> ASL and all the rest um, does require some sort of sketch to be laid out. And so I- What I is ASL? Reading. Oh, American Sign Language, right. It's so that interpreters can be sort of well-versed in what you're going to talk about before they are there to interpret. Oh, I'm sorry. Of course I know what ASL is. Was there an interpreter <laughs> at your talk? Well, hilariously, there were two, and neither <laughs> of them ended up being <laughs> put to work because there were no people uh, with hearing impairments in the audience. So they just sort of sat in the front row for the duration of the talk, which I felt quite badly about, <laughs> probably in an outsized way. But I just thought, I hate that they've been held captive both for two weeks yeah. and for the duration of this talk. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> On a very like niche topic, but hey. <laughs> it's a long way of saying I did some reading in a way that I wouldn't have normally <laughs> for a talk. <laughs> and the result is I read a book I had been meaning to read uh, through the pandemic, but for whatever reason hadn't gotten around to meaningfully called Art Writing in Crisis. It's a collection of essays co-edited by Brad Haylock and Megan Patty. And this is the kind of book that can get my hackles up, at least on spec. You know, I'm I'm thoroughly exhausted by the crisis talk in art writing and criticism, which I think has been sort of pervasive and dominant for too long, several decades now. And to see a slight sort of tweak on that frame, which this book attempts, didn't seem to change the page significantly. At least that was sort of part of my dragging my heels to read it. But as we'll maybe get into today, um, there are a few essays in this book in particular that changed my mind on a few things and helped sort of rotate me forward in some of the thinking I want to be doing around the future of art criticism. Yeah, I think I think this is a good book. <laughs> I love that consideration. You've given this a few years. You've been sitting with yeah. it for a minute. <laughs> and I'll say and I'll say it. I'll say it out loud. <laughs> this is a good book. <laughs> talk to talk to me about some of your first impressions. Like I want to know, did you go yeah. in with your hackles raised at all? Yes, of course. I mean, it's this like very pristine white book, Sternberg Press. Yeah. The second it was in my bag, it had schmutz all over it. Of course, yes. it's got all of the names you love to hate. We've got, we've got, mm. um, who do we got here? Boris Boris. We've got Barry <laughs> Schwabsky. We've got Dan Fox. But also, good essay. Again, I'll say it. Great essay. Great essay, man. We have to roll this back for a second because I think we're starting out with the shared presumption that our audience is also rolling their eyes at some of these names. Do you mean that there's, it's a bit of a love to hate because they're so ubiquitous, they're so known as bylines? Yes, but I do think that the thing that this book very clearly does is it weights it on the other end, right? There are a lot yeah. of people from a lot of different places coming at this from a lot of different 
directions. There are some really, really great contributors. Maddie Clark doing a deep dive on the situation of decolonization, quote unquote, in Australian institutions. Um, We have Taylor, Renee Aldridge, and Jessica Lynn doing a really beautiful conversation about friendship and criticism. And I think that there is a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this publication. Yeah, I agree. There's a gorgeous text by Bella Lee and Justin Clemens, which we'll reference. And yeah, Aldridge and Lynn, who are the co-founders of Arts.Black, Journal of Art Criticism from Black Perspectives in the States, they talk about criticism as emancipatory, which was so needed and, um, again, sort of propelled us into new language. This thing that comes up even in the in the beginning, in this blurb from um, from Roger Conover, who is the editor of MIT Press Writing Art Series, he has this kind of like breathless blurb that starts: "Is there art without writing? Can writing be art? Is art writing a distinctive genre? How is it different from writing of art history and criticism?" And you're like, dude. <laughs> I think that in a way, like as much as I make fun of it, I think that these are this kind of central questions, like what is this thing and how are we doing it? And the way that we get sort of each text trying to position itself around what it's actually writing about and how from there we get this multifaceted view of like a really kind of frenetically misunderstood even from within field of writing even in just reading Taylor and Jess's text in conversation with Dan Fox's text, where there's a part where Dan Fox talks about disagreement made the critic unmutual, bad for the community. Mm. That's a quote. But then there's this beautiful part at the end of Jess and Taylor's conversation where they have a completely different take on it. Quote, our friendship is one of magnificent dreaming, strategizing, and building. I love how our people have taught us that this is a function of criticism, of response, of naming a future. Mm. I mean, obviously, these three people are coming from like completely different perspectives and positions. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Jess says very specifically, like we're talking about criticism or art writing outside of a dominant culture, whereas arguably, I think Dan Fox, or at least Freeze, was the dominant culture. Um for much mm-hmm. of like recent history. And so these are very different ways of thinking about what it actually means to critically engage. Yeah. And I think Dan Fox is essentially penning a retirement essay. I mean, albeit, you know, at the grand old age of like 40, but he's been <laughs> in the freeze machine for 20 years. And this is his like, peace out. And Jess and Taylor go on being extremely active contributors as writers and in Taylor's case as a curator and publishing and with Jess being as involved as she is in mentorship. I think you can see maybe not to oversimplify the dyad, but these are two women Mm -hmm. who are invested and this is a man who has left. And the tonalities, Mm -hmm. I think, can somewhat be attributed to those proximities or distances from the field actively. Yeah, and there are many, many contributions in this book. So those these are just two. But I think that we can have a book that captures both of these positions. It's very impressive. Yeah. When we started to think about this season being about a, a text that is important to you or has been important, there are texts that came up for you. We were talking about Janet Malcolm. We were talking about The Horse's Mouth. But why this one? 
how did it contribute to the this sort of talk that you were giving and how have you continued to think about it after that talk? I think it's important to understand what art writing and criticism has recently been in order to have a sense of its future. So as much as I was frustrated to see only like a small tweak, I guess, on the art writing in crisis modality of discourse around its health at the state of things Mm -hmm. in this book, um, art writing against crisis, I guess, would have been a better title for it if if we're thinking about how it's positioning the kind of environment of urgency that Mm -hmm. this field is sort of working in response to. But I, I guess, despite that that quibble, I found myself so um, seen by a lot of these texts in terms of how I've been trying to move the needle of this conversation forward, even within our personal like circle of collaborators and friends, hmm. and have rarely seen it estimated with any sense of futurity in the public discourse. I'll say that very recently, the New York Times put out yet another piece that sort of bemoaned <laughs> the the state of the field, right? So that this is a this, yeah. there are mainstream media glimpses of attention on how things are going, and they're almost always fatalistic. I will say too, within the context of Canada, which you know I was giving my talk in Toronto for context. This is a conversation of like special urgency here because we've lost Canadian Art Magazine within the last three years, and it is more or less all that gallerists want to talk about with me when I'm doing my rounds in cities Mm. that I don't call home. We seem to be sort of most comfortable eulogizing and emphasizing the kind of, um, why can't we have nice things of (laughs) of, of (laughs) our our work. And And I'm here to say, listen, we're working so frequently, at least at moments, with emerging talent and we're seeing publications be borne out on the other side of our residencies by some really vital contributors to the field. And I would so much prefer that the conversation move in those directions. I agree. I mean, this conversation is ever present. Like I remember you shared with me this Moose article by Travis Jepson that came out last year that was called called Object Oriented Towards a Regeneration of Art Criticism as Literary Practice. The funny thing about that essay was that as much as it's trying to like reorient art criticism, the footnote is like, this essay owes a tremendous debt to James Elkins, who is this kind of like, you know, (laughs) granddaddy of (laughs) this idea of art criticism being in crisis. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, Elkins and Raphael Rubinstein are, I think, the the two granddaddies of hand-wringing around the state of criticism, um, both of whom have published books in the early to mid-aughts. I think Elkins' State of Art Criticism came out in 2005. And that was, you know, jointly authored, arguably. It was a series of essays and and transcriptions from roundtables in which mostly older white men were arguing with one another about the source of their disregard by, you know, perceived <laughs> um, disappeared audience. I think what's interesting, though, about this art writing and crisis book by by comparison is that there's yeah. less ha- hand-wringing about our yes. own failure to not only collect but maintain readership and more of an acknowledgement and you know, a a cooler tempered one at that, that we're talking about systems of circulation, ultimately, that have Mm. not privileged publishing in the last decade or so. So as we sort of contend with a completely tectonically shifted art writing and criticism, 
how can we somehow take up this challenge to to sort of circumnavigate or work with, for instance, social media to appreciate mm. a kind of diffusion of contemplation or disruption of thinking in art and and recognize these as opportunities potentially or or anyway challenges, right? Rather than destructive forces that cannot be recovered from. The central aspect of that being access. You know, yes, people who it. have been kept out very specifically for a yes. very long time. There are points of access now, and that is very scary, I think, to a lot of people. You know, case in point, we're still having conversations about this idea of some kind of objective voice and that being like the way that one should be writing at all. I would have normally found that to be such a non-starter that we didn't even have to cite it. But right. after <laughs> teaching a workshop, I was dismayed to realize that, in fact, a kind of hoped for neutral academic voice in heavy quotations mm -hmm. is still being taught in, in art writing criticism and in universities that you and I attended. So <laughs> the needle is not shifting in some of the spaces that are most devoted to this conversation. I think the other thing to say is, is that when we lament what's lost, we are often applying a kind of nostalgia to what mm. was. In the case of a Canadian conversation around, for instance, this, I guess, essentially a broadsheet, right? Canadian art was always a sort of generalist publication. At its peak, it was sort of a coffee table worthy print publication, a legacy media object, yeah? And <laughs> I don't know that audiences have been looking for... <laughs> <laughs> needing, reaching for that kind of object in some time. So what are, and, and when we were, we were apparently a generalist readership. That means that the people that we are now hoping to hear from, scrambling to hear from, if you're coming from an institutional perspective, as we've seen museums do in the last few years with middling success, if we are now trying to reach for quote unquote off-center or marginalized or historically underrepresented voices, then we can't with our other hand still be reaching for kind of nostalgic versions of how this operated. What I'd like to see less of is a lamentation for that sort of gen pub past and a recognition that with a kind of nicheification of the discourse, we get deeper dives and a wider scope. Right. This is, I mm -hmm. think, a net good that we're seeing smaller, independently run, often online and often being helmed by critics of color. Those mm -hmm. kinds of publications, that is not a loss. Right. This is a, a kind of moment of abundance. Do you see Momus as a niche platform? I think inevitably. Right. It has to be. We're not sort of working from the widest part of the triangle towards its point, but rather from a very pointed perspective, hopefully a really original voice and increasingly in geographies and subjectivities that we have not heard from before. So I think in that case, it has to be described sort of as niche, but hopefully in the way of, you know, like a mentor early in my art writing trajectory said, if you want to understand how to write good criticism about art, read good criticism about books, because mm. there's there's never going to be an assumption that you've read the book, right? So the job of the critic mm. in literary criticism, which I think, you know, sidebar, they're going through their own sort of seizure of crisis lately, um, is to sort of describe its subject without any presumed knowledge and to draw circles out from a point that one maybe starts from to make something sort of hang on a larger discourse or or assert a, a greater relevance. And I think 
too often with art, we're sort of either relying on the JPEG or relying on a presumed insider familiarity with what we're writing about such that we don't do that work of making something more accessible in mm-hmm. the most basic sense. How, how do you enter onto something you have not visited with or studied before? And how do you hang it on something that that will allow for it to have a longer life than the, the duration of its exhibition? I think these are questions mm-hmm. that sit at the center of a lot of our writing. So hopefully, yes, niche, but also accessible, right? I mean, these are sort of the two goalposts. Right. And does that hang around this idea of description, which is something that Fox brings up in his essay too, that art writing that is descriptive is somehow seen as like, I don't know, hacky or something. But then he says the presumption that a description doesn't in itself also contain subjective information and choices. Yeah, it was refreshing to have him write that. I A long time now, I've been sort of abstractly positioning us against a kind of a flooding of art writing that happened in the early 2010s of descriptive, you know, unpositioned art writing. Mm-hmm. But Dan Fox kind of usefully challenges that and says, no, descriptions are always coming from a subjectivity. Of course they are. How could they not be? And and why are we why are we sort of castigating this very service servicey criticism to lack of courage, you know? Yeah. That is something that I definitely want to talk about. The- that came up in this essay, this idea of art criticism or art writing as a service or support profession. You know, like he mm-hmm. talks about how at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody was interested in helping art writers who supports the supporters. And yeah, does talking about it as a support structure for art negate the art that it practices itself? I don't think that... We're seeing art writing and criticism alloy to those separate camps in the same way that we used to. That doesn't stop this book from starting off with a really annoying essay, though, about (laughs) can art writing be art, which I'm also a little bit exhausted by. You know, I think inevitably the work needs to provide context and hopefully link art to the world in which it participates. I think one of the things that this book orients us to, which is useful, is a kind of doing away of certain binaries that have been sort of insidious and under-investigated in in art, which is crucially that we tend to talk about there being an art world or if, you know, begrudgingly art worlds, (laughs) but still acknowledging that there's an outside and an inside. Um, And much as I'm a huge defender of, you know, art requiring its own lexicon and having its own... um, histories and contexts that are deserving of of understanding before one launches in. I think at the same time, there's a kind of generosity to sentence structure and argumentation that can bring and in fact invite readers along um, that online publishing is actually particularly well suited to do, right? Whether that's because hyperlinks produce a kind of buttress of knowledge formation for invested readers or because we can see conversations sort of happening and triangulating among other publications and social media platforms much more easily. It's not uncommon in contemporary criticism that you'll see people linking out to tweets or other sort of more discursive and generative platforms where conversation actually roils from. And I would also say that within that, within sort of the the understanding that online publishing 
opens up community and context, we also, I think, increasingly can recognize that knowledge is not power. And that's something that Bella Lee and Justin Clemens get into in their essay in this book, which is that today we have something like absolute knowledge paired with absolute impotence, I'm quoting them, absolute Mm. urgency coupled with absolute confusion. And so there is, I think, a recognition of the service, to use that word again, of criticism because of sort of the cacophony that we need to fight through for meaning making and for evaluation. So I I feel this is not a new point, but it's one that with an altered context and shifted sort of systems of dissemination, we can appreciate newly. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting kind of way to position collectivity uh, and the possibility of actually creating publications together over geographic distance and time um, as possible. And that this is, in fact, how we are working now. It reminds me of a tweet that surfaced a couple months ago when Book Forum collapsed, which got everybody up in arms, and like a week later, Catapult, another literary, although smaller, but much beloved by its writers, platform closed. And there was this tweet about like, okay, so not-for-profits, not working. (laughs) Benefactor-funded, not working, right? Um, If we can at this point, sort of reconcile ourselves to not having a working model for how to to sustain yes. some of these most cherished platforms, then maybe what we're missing is talking about coalition building in publishing. I, I mean, I'm really just at the first page of thinking this through. Not to belabor the point, but I think reaching for a kind of in amber notion of what art publishing should look like is not working for us. I think one of the one of the main things that was exciting about this book is that it proposes different futures. You know, it takes to task a history and also the contemporaneity of the field, but as we've said, doesn't sit in that hand wringing. That there are propositions for moving forward, which I think is something that you and I try really hard, kind of every day, to make each other do. And seeing mm-hmm. the the programs as the way that that we can do that, right? That we can create mm-hmm. mentorship opportunities for people to participate in conversations with a group of peers about art criticism and art writing, to write, to have their writing reflected upon. And how we've seen that plug directly into the industry or the field. You know, people who have gone on from the mentorship programs to have new bylines, to win awards, to write books. Like that future is happening in a really accelerated present. And then to see a book like this as also potentially trying to do that same thing in the form of collected texts is exciting. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to get to this earlier, and I think I kind of got pulled off my point, but I I just want to kind of close this loop around the outside versus the inside, quote unquote. I think one of the most useful interventions in this book is, again, this essay by Bella Lee and Justin Clemens, who talk about, you know, for instance, Janet Malcolm, the great kind of conceit of her famous 41 False Starts, this essay about David Sowell that she penned in the early 90s, and her objection, right, which she writes into the essay was, I'm not in the art world. You've got the wrong person hmm. when David Sowell was approaching her to do this piece. 
and his, him saying, no, that's exactly why I want you. We need outside eyes. So Bella Lee and Justin Clemens get into this notion of like, what does an outside quote unquote seer achieve for us in the quote unquote inside? And why is this, you know, increasingly, or at least I think there was sort of maybe five years there where it seemed quite the thing to do, right? Bring in sort of um, somebody from an adjacent field in which they might be deeply invested, science or I, I can't think of any other fields and, <laughs> and like sort of graft <laughs> over. <laughs> Talk about being siloed on the inside. Jesus, Science. what do people do? <laughs> what do other people do? But yeah, at, and and that there's a kind of, uh, there's an upholding of the binary of inside and outside when you do that, as much as there's a disruption of it. I wonder like how you see that changing based on who is uh, participating in these critiques now. Maddie Clark does like a concentrated piece around this 2016 biennial of Sydney and how there was a kind of remit in a workshop to think about the future. This was a quote unquote future in which art had been stripped of everything we've known it to be identified by. And like, how do we go from there? And Maddie does a good job of like restraining themselves and talking about this and not doing a demonstrable eye roll. But I found myself frustrated <laughs> by this being like the the necessary sort of shuttling forward that we do, which is we don't talk about the present. We don't talk about things that are percolating and exciting. We just go straight to in a world where <laughs> art doesn't exist. Yeah, because at the same time, we're always having this question about like, at no time more than now is art of central <laughs> importance. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the cognitive dissonance is pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so this kind of like forever shunting us forward through the pipeline of the present to this like obscure, deserted wasteland of a future in which we have to redefine the terms by which art functions is... Mm is a bit like putting a ticking hand grenade in the hands of the next generation and saying, deal with it, right? And maybe only from a place of explosion can we rebuild. And that is not the act of generosity you're describing it to be, right? (laughs) Which is that we ruin what we have and then ask for, you know, completely unnurtured recipients to somehow craft a solution from what's been demolished. And I would prefer, I guess, to locate us in like a near present tense when we're talking about (laughs) what's good (laughs) rather than this forever deferring to the future what it can be, right? We'll call it like a, um, in the French way, like a present imperfect, let's say. If, if that isn't the title of this episode, I don't know what is. <laughs> so on that note, I do want to kind of point us to some of the exciting critics and publishers that we've seen emerge in recent years. And some of the platforms that are, if not new, then doing some of the most exciting work lately. Yes, please. So in recent seasons... Burnaway in the American South is doing a lot of heavy lifting and exciting publishing. Guts, mm-hmm. which is an Indigenous-led and owned publication online here in Canada, has emerged. Um, the Pantograph Punch, also Indigenous-led. Um, mm-hmm. Reissue, which is based out of Vancouver and looking at the West Coast, not just Canadian, but California all the way down Turtle Island. And I think redefining sort of a geographical mm-hmm. focus or regionalism in that way. 
Unmagazine, also Indigenous-led, which Maddie Clark, who we've been citing, is one of the publishers of, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. A Shade Colder, which is out of Estonia. There's also Silverfish, one of our residents, Dallas Fellini, started in Toronto. Femme Art Review. Absolutely. Runway Journal is interesting in the way that they're talking mm-hmm. about the cultural field at large. Also, Eugene Yu Nam Chung, who's one of the shortlisted fellows from last year, they run Decolonial Hacker, which is a new kind of media configuration, not just a platform for art writing. And there's also uh, Nothing Personal, which is based out of Glasgow and um, mm-hmm. doing some really deep study art writing publishing. Quite a few others that we could name. So yeah, I feel like this is a really energized space. I think one of the most strident takeaways for me in the last few seasons, even just alone, in especially watching some smaller literary titles uh, fall away, like Catapult and Astra, there was this tweet by a writer, Rachel Verona Coates, which I will quote here, that really felt resonant to the project of Momus and also um, so many others who are working in sort of more niche, quote unquote, publishing spaces right now. She wrote, we owe new writers, especially new writers without family money or connections or head-turning academic affiliations, places to submit their work and be taken seriously. We owe them resources that demystify the tricky ways of media. And Catapult has been one such resource, but um, of course, there are many others that we've just nodded to. I think it's also important to remember when we are producing kind of hagiographies right now around recently deceased critics like Peter Sheldon and Dave Hickey. A lot of this writing, I think, necessarily and importantly points to long dead platforms that hosted their writing at the start. And they're usually sort of these hothouse indie pubs like Village Voice or uh, lesser known things that Dave Hickey published to on the West Coast that gave credence to editorial support, most crucially, and a kind of freedom to writers who were trying to change the form and succeeded in doing so with that support. So Mm -hmm. I think this is where my intention is lying right now, is we don't know what this, you know, forever portended future of art criticism will look like without giving great resource time and support to those who are writing right now. There you (laughs) go. It's interesting because this season is going to be about talking to writers, and we've been talking to you as a publisher, but you do Mm. also write, and one of the fixtures of this season is going to be doing these rapid-fire questions, so I want to turn to that, if you can put Mm. your writer hat on now. I have not been writing much in the last three years or four even, but I'm happy to to try to get myself back into that headspace. Okay. Okay. Do you like writing? Yes. I don't okay. like anticipating <laughs> writing, but once I'm doing it, I'm, I'm well and good. It's like swimming, you know, Ooh, who wants to get cold and wet. But once you're there, you love the feeling. Yeah. Once you're past your uh, genitals. <laughs> I don't think that carries over so easily, <laughs> metaphorically, unless you write in a way that I need to hear about. <laughs> Well, for another episode. (laughs) What is the last thing you wrote that you feel good about? Lately, I've been taking a lot of pleasure in longer emails. And I'm not sure that that's the answer you're looking for. But I, I can only somehow locate my writerly urge in corresponding with friends. And 
by tricking myself into writing them, I can often sort of like come upon new thinking and by the end of it, oftentimes be really thrilled with the sort of skill of, of the, the email itself. So yeah, I've been taking pleasure in that. And what is the last thing that you read that you feel good about? <gasps> oh my God. This piece of criticism by Patricia Lockwood, which I sent you last night. I don't know if you got to read. I haven't, um, then tell me all about it. Well, this is a bit of a confession because I've for a long time been a big fan of John Updike's, which I gather is hugely unpopular and probably embarrassing. And <laughs> Patricia Lockwood makes sure I know that by the end of this like 7,000 word screed in the London Review of Books, which you also have to admire had her as the cover story writing about long dead Updike in 2019. I believe he died in like 2010 or something. So it's not like this had great relevance or was anchored to anything in particular, right? But the, I mean, iconic, longstanding founding publisher and editor of the LRB commissioned Patricia to just, who's already a thrilling writer, commissioned her to write against and, and try to like understand her own objections to John Updike. And it is... It takes you by the scruff of the neck and just carries you through. And it's hilarious in parts. And and I can't look at Updike the same after having read it. So it changed me. Yeah, you can't say that about too many pieces. Oh, that's really exciting. Yeah, there are so many writers that you scoff at them, but you don't entirely get a chance to really interrogate what the problem is. Like, yes. <laughs> for instance, for me, it's Henry Miller just the worst, the worst. And then I was like, what was the last time I actually read Tropic of Cancer? I should really, if I'm going to be tooting this all around town, <laughs> or, or, you know, <laughs> to my beleaguered partner, um, I should really give it another chance. And my God, could I not get one chapter into that book without wanting to murder myself? <laughs> My memory is venereal disease when oh, it comes to the my God. <laughs> And like every woman is the purse of her genitals. It's just like, get out of here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Arguably, he shares that with Updike, actually. I mean, yes. Again, like this kind of gets us back to that, that note from my mentor. If you want to sort of think about how to construct great art criticism, look to literary criticism and yeah. Lockwood does it. Yeah, it's a great answer. Okay, I'll ask which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? Oh, yeah. Joyce Carey, who wrote The Horse's Mouth, that was published in 1941. It's almost the, you know, text that I wanted us to talk about today, but it felt a little too sentimental or something. But it, that was the book that showed me how an artist thinks. Hmm. Um, importantly, it was my parents, both of whom are artists as well, favorite book we named our beagle after the bartender in the book coker and there's a kind of joy and hustle and ludic dreammanship to this protagonist and i would just like to sit down with joyce and understand how he sketched such a sort of perfect encapsulation of the artist's mind and what is the text you want to write but you know you won't oof I don't know if I'm ready to say I won't, but what looms large is a kind of remit to historically account for the last 40 years of art writing and criticism in Canada. 
because I do, you know, I can remember starting out, however, you know, 10 or 12 years ago and, and being conscious that things had been more animated in the 70s and 80s than they were in the early 2010s, right? Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be useful to try to like track and trace that those waves of animation and engagement, both in terms of the writing and the readership. And I, I think that's worth doing. It feels dirge-like <laughs> and daunting. So I'm not sure yeah. if I will. Yeah, that feels like a PhD, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Someone pay me and put me in a library for four years. (laughs) (laughs) And if being paid and put in a library is not the pleasure of writing, what is? (laughs) Well, like it's pretty close. Um, (laughs) Pleasure of writing. I'm sure this has been iterated before by guests of ours, but is, is to know what you think. And I think for me, in a way that I have trouble doing while I'm experiencing art in the present moment, writing gives me a chance to experience art somatically. It's somehow the retention of, the remembrance of, the revivification of how you felt in that space, which invariably at the time I feel bored and can't wait to get out. But (laughs) something happens in like trying to distill and recapture that, that is perhaps like the most alive I feel when it comes to art. Beautiful. Thank you, Sky. Thank you. What a pleasure. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. You can find us at patreon.com backslash momusart or contact me directly about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 44 of Momus the Podcast.